Hail and well met, everyone. Welcome to Geek Thyself, a podcast by a nerd for other nerds that love geeking out over random facts and esoteric trivia. My name is Heather, and I'll be your host as we journey into the wondrous land of information. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Geek Thyself. This week, I'm going to be talking about something that I think everyone's at least slightly familiar with. Most of us have seen or at least heard of the story of the movie 300. 300 Spartans against thousands or possibly millions of Persians, and they stood their ground, and even though they didn't make it, it was a huge fight and a big historical battle. Well, the truth behind that story is a little different, and that's what I'm going to talk to you about today. The real battle that the movie 300 is based off of is called the Battle of Thermopylae. And in order to explain just how big a deal the battle was historically in terms of the Greek society, I'm going to start off with giving you a little bit of background behind the beginnings of that battle. The really, really big thing that was a huge deal historically about this battle wasn't so much that a smaller force defended itself against a larger force. The bigger deal was actually the fact that the Greek city-states came together to defend themselves from this Persian invasion. Historically, the Greek city-states didn't get along that well. A lot of them fought quite often. There were a lot of big and small battles between them. And a lot of it had to do with how different they all were. The best modern day description that I can really think of is actually the United States. Now, our states don't go to battle with each other, at least not physical battle. But there are differences in terms of what one state wants versus another. And there are some, you know, political battles. For instance, I live in California. We tend to be a little more eco-focused and things like that. Whereas another state... For instance, like Michigan, which has, or at least historically, had a lot of car production, they were more focused on business stuff. So what our two states wanted is not the same thing. The way our two states run is not the same. And it doesn't mean necessarily that we're going to battle each other like they did in ancient Greece, but that did sometimes happen back then. Because the way one city-state was run was completely different from another. The things one city-state valued were completely different from another. And that's just how it was. A good example of this is actually two of the biggest, most powerful city-states of the time, Athens and Sparta. Athens was very into education. They had a large navy. They were very into luxuries and also very democratic. Everyone had an equal say, be you... A, a low peasant versus a noble, everyone had a vote. In Sparta, a lot of people were treated very equally, but in a very different way. It was very military-focused. Everyone, regardless of whether you were born to a more noble family with more money or a poorer family, all of you went to the same military school. Men and women were taught to fight, and they were expected to maintain themselves in peak physical form. And their kings and their leaders were chosen not by birth, but by skill and what they were able to do. So the best fighters, the most strategic minds became the leaders, not just someone who was born into it. So these two running styles were very different and the things they focused on were very different. 
But when it came to the Battle of Thermopylae and defending Greece from the Persians, these two city-states who historically did not like each other very much came together to defend themselves and their fellow countrymen in Greece. In terms of what actually triggered the Battle of Thermopylae, we have to go back to the previous king of Persia. Xerxes I is the king of Persia that actually led the invasion regarding the Battle of Thermopylae. But his father, Darius I, is actually the one who really first started going into Greece and sort of initiated this happening. The Persian Empire was vast huge. They had control over multiple countries. They had footholds in Egypt. They had footholds all over the Middle East and the Peloponnesian area back then. The Peloponnesian Peninsula is where Greece and Rome and everything are, but the Persians had a foothold there as well. And they wanted to conquer more. They wanted to expand. They were constantly doing this. Darius actually led the first invasion into Greece, and the reason he wanted to go invade had to do with attacking Athens specifically. What had happened is that the Ionians, which was another smaller city-state, had started to revolt against their Persian overlords, the Persians who were, you know, taking over and running things and had conquered them. The Ionians were fighting back, and so Athens, along with another city-state, sent people to help them because they wanted to aid the revolt and kick the Persians out. This made Darius incredibly angry. He was, his people were routed from there, they were forced to leave, and it made him swear revenge on the Athenians. One historian has a story that says that Darius actually told one of his slaves to tell him every night at dinner three times, Master, remember the Athenians, over and over again. Now, Records from back then can be slightly skewed. You know, there were no media, no video, no audio. So we just have to go based off of what we're being told. But if that's true, then it's fair to say that Darius had a pretty big grudge against Athens. So at this point, Darius wanted revenge against Athens. And he still wanted to invade the Grecian peninsula, the Peloponnesian peninsula. So at this point, he sent in a force to try and invade, but unfortunately, his fleet was hit by a large storm, and so the majority of the ships sank, and he couldn't use that fleet. He started to prepare another invasion, and he wanted to try and conquer the city-states easily. So he actually sent emissaries to different city-states. Hi, Mowgli. And told them that if they wanted to show their submission to Persia... Okay, so Mowgli felt like saying hi. Sorry about that. So Darius sent emissaries to these city-states, and the emissaries basically told the city-states, if you send dirt and water from your city to Darius, we will take it as a sign of submission, which means you're basically surrendering and we won't fight you. A lot of smaller city-states did this. They capitulated and they sent the soil and they sent the water because they just didn't have the forces to protect themselves. So rather than risk being completely destroyed, they gave in. However, Sparta and Athens both said no in very decided fashion. Athens actually put the emissaries from Darius on trial. They were found guilty and they killed them by throwing them into a pit. Sparta, on the other hand apparently threw the emissaries into a deep well and told them to find their own dirt. 
that's likely where they got the idea for the movie 300 for that famous scene where Leonidas kicks the emissary into the well and he falls after insulting the queen. Now, it's possible that something like that happened historically, or at least, you know, something along those lines. But in reality, what we do know is that Sparta said no when Darius wanted everyone to give in. At this point, this second invasion force was actually driven out by Athenians, and so that one didn't get very far either. Xerxes I, after his father died, sent more emissaries, again for the same reason. Give me water, give me dirt, I'll accept this as your submission and we won't attack you. You'll just become part of our empire, it'll be simple. However, Xerxes I didn't bother sending emissaries to Athens or to Sparta. There's some debate on why that might have been. One possibility is that he knew from previously that it was unlikely they would accept. Another possibility is that he wanted revenge on them just as badly as his father had, and so he wasn't going to give either of those cities a chance to submit because he wanted to destroy them. Either way, none got sent to Athens and Sparta that time around. Before getting into the actual battle itself, it's also important to know some of the differences between the Persian and the Greek forces, because it sort of explains how the Greeks were able to defend themselves so well. For one thing, the Greeks, pretty much across the board, fought with a specific style. And up until fighting Persia or other invading forces, they really hadn't fought much except amongst each other. So a set of hoplites, which is what the Greek soldiers were called, versus other hoplites, you know, was a little more evenly matched. It was standard for them to have the really big shields and they would build the shield walls in a phalanx, just like you see in the movie 300, where they've all got their shields up and they're defending themselves. And then from behind those shields, a second line of soldiers is stabbing people with a really long spear. That actually is how they fought, and it's how most Greeks fought. So that was their fighting style, whereas the Persians had a bigger mix of different types of fighting styles because they had conquered so many different countries. So they had cavalry, they had archers, they had chariots, they had a a bigger mishmash of different options. But that phalanx is very effective, and it did turn out to be very effective against the Persian invading forces because it was something they weren't really prepared to fight against. In terms of the makeup of the Persian army, we do actually have records from ancient historians of the time. Now, I do want to preface this with the information that Pretty much all of the ancient historians that wrote about the Battle of Thermopylae were Greek. So some of the accounts might be slightly skewed, and we really don't have a way to know for sure. A lot of them are skewed in favor of painting the Persians as the evil barbaric invaders, whereas the Greeks are, of course, heroic. And that's not overly surprising, you know, the old saying, history is written by the victor. According to Herodotus, a Greek historian, in front of the king, the Persian king, went first a thousand horsemen, picked men of the Persian nation, then spearmen a thousand, likewise chosen troops, with their spearheads pointing towards the ground. Next, ten of the sacred horses called Nicene, all daintily caparisoned. After the ten sacred horses, the holy chariot of Jupiter came, drawn by eight milk-white steeds, The charioteer followed on foot holding the reins, 
No mortal is ever allowed to mount into the car. Next to this came Xerxes himself, riding in a chariot drawn by Nicene horses with his charioteer, Pateremphes, the son of Otanis, a Persian, standing by his side. Immediately behind the king there followed a body of a thousand spearmen, the noblest and bravest of the Persians, holding their lances in the usual manner. Then came a thousand Persian horse-picked men, then ten thousand, picked also after the rest, and serving on foot. So just based off of that description, it's already sounding like the Persians have a whole lot more men than the Greeks did. And all the accounts agree on that, that there were a lot more Persians than there were Greeks, though the exact number varies a lot. The number, depending on the historian, varies all the way from 800,000 up to roughly 2 million. That's the ancient historians, though. Most modern historians, based off records of the number of ships and how many men could have fit on those ships, suspect that the Persian force was closer to 300 to 500,000 men, which is still a lot more than what the Greeks had, but not quite as heavily skewed in the Persians' favor. Beyond having the larger force, Xerxes also had another benefit that the Greeks did not, which was advice from an insider. Xerxes actually had a former king of Sparta named Demeritus as an advisor. Demeritus had been exiled around 491 BC and had ended up as part of Xerxes' court and ultimately as one of his advisors. So he had a lot of inside information on how the Greeks fought, as well as how Sparta in particular would respond and would fight. And that gave Xerxes a little bit of an added benefit. It's believed that the timing of Xerxes' invasion was likely a result of Demeritus' knowledge and advice, because they actually staged their invasion to occur during the time of a Spartan festival called Carnea, and the Carnean festival involved a traditional time of peace, and it was considered a very big offense to the gods to march to war during that time frame. So basically... It's believed that Demeritus was trying to create a way for Xerxes to not have to fight the Spartans at all. According to Herodotus, Demeritus also did something which may have hurt Xerxes. He sent a message to Sparta, and he needed to obviously make sure it wasn't going to be discovered, so he took a tablet that had his message on it and coated it in wax so that the message itself couldn't be read. Again, according to Herodotus, it was actually Gorgo, the wife of King Leonidas, who figured out that if they scraped off the wax, they could see the message. And the message from Demeritus was that Xerxes was going to invade. Historians don't know exactly why he sent the message. One possibility is that he still felt some loyalty to his old home, and so he wanted to give them a warning. Another possibility is that he was boasting because he had been exiled, and so now he was going to be coming in with an even stronger force than the Spartans to conquer them and the rest of Greece, that sort of thing. We don't know exactly which of those two it was, but either way, that gave the Spartans and the other Greek city-states a chance to rally their forces and come together to defend their homes. Hi everyone, so this week for the 
mid-episode talk, I want to talk to you about two different shows on the Nerdsmith Network that I really enjoy listening to and that I think you should check out. The first one is Threads in the Veil. It's a sister story to The Shenanigans, which is an actual play podcast. It takes place in the same city, the same general setting, and some of the stuff that's going to be brought up during Threads in the Veil has some crossover with Shenanigans, but you don't have to listen to either one to understand what's going on. It just gives you little Easter eggs, basically, if you've listened to both. I definitely recommend checking it out. The voice actors are phenomenal, the characters are amazing, and I think you'll enjoy it. The other show I want to talk to you about at the Nerdsmith Network is Married to the DM. For a lot of us, part of gaming is also going to involve our significant other. Now, some of us, like myself, are lucky enough to have a significant other, my husband in my case, who also enjoys role-playing and wants to be a part of it just as much as I do. He's actually one of the other players on Shenanigans, and he's going to be in one of the upcoming shows here at Nerdsmith as well. But for others, it's not always as easy. Sometimes there's growing pains. Sometimes it's hard to play with your significant other because maybe your characters don't get along or something's going on like that or there's questions of how to do it and still maintain neutrality with all the other players. Either way, if you check out Mary to the DM, you can listen to Logan, our 20-sided DM and the DM for Shenanigans, and Tessa, who's another of the Shenanigans members, talk about how they make it work when Logan is our primary DM and Tessa is usually one of the players. So definitely check those out at nerdsmith.org or wherever you download your podcasts. And with that, let's get back to finding out about the Battle of Thermopylae. Okay, so now let's get into the actual Battle of Thermopylae and what happened after. For the actual battle, it's often described as only being the 300 Spartans, or at least those are the ones people focus on. But in reality, many other Greek soldiers went with them. There were, of course, the 300 Spartan warriors, and the reason there were only 300 has to do with the Carnean festival that I mentioned earlier. When they got word that the invading forces were going to be arriving during the festival, of course, there was a lot of debate for the Spartans of do we help them, do we not, do we go, do we not because of this festival, and not wanting to insult the gods. One of the kings, because Sparta always had two kings in case one fell in battle, but one of the kings, King Leonidas, went to the priests and basically beseeched them to let him take forces to help defend Greece. They ultimately agreed to let him take his king's bodyguard, which was 300 Spartan elite soldiers. So he took them and went to join the battle, along with 600 of their peers, meaning men who were from territories of Sparta, but they weren't necessarily full citizens. And then there were also 600 servants, making a total of roughly 1,500 men from Sparta. In addition, they were joined by over 3,000 hoplites, so 3,000 warriors, from the city-states of Corinth, Arcadia, Mycenae, Tegea, and Matinea. They had 700 men from Thespia, 400 men from Thebes. And the Phocians, which were 
another uh, city-state, sent roughly a thousand men. And according to Herodotus, the Locrians also sent forces, likely around a thousand men again. And that's just the infantry. Beyond the infantry, there was also all of the Athenian naval forces, plus any other naval forces that joined them from the other city-states. So despite the fact that these 300 Spartans are the ones that get focused on a lot, there were actually thousands of other Greek warriors who all banded together from city-states that traditionally did not like each other to come together to defend their country and defend their home. The naval forces of Athens and the other city-states are especially important in the Battle of Thermopylae because without them having forced the Persian naval forces to land and therefore forced the infantry to go through Thermopylae, the pass in the mountains, there would never have been a battle there because the Persian forces would have simply gone around it rather than having to go through the mountain pass that would lead them into the main portion of the Peloponnesian Peninsula. So the Spartans led the armies on land, and the Athenians led the armies on the water, because the Athenians had the strongest naval force of the Peloponnesian Peninsula. Despite having more than the 300 men from Sparta, there were still not nearly as many of them as there were of the Persians. And so it's no surprise that according to most of the historical records, when the Greeks saw the impending force of all of those Persian soldiers, there were some who said, you know, hey, we should run away, we should retreat, we should pull back. Because, of course, they were worried about dying. Leonidas was leading the forces there and he refused to budge. He didn't want to give way to the Persians if they could help it. He wanted to protect not only his home further away, but also those of some of the soldiers that lived more locally to that area, specifically the Phocian and Locrian soldiers who had their towns just on the other side of these passes. There's also some record saying that he consulted an oracle before battle who had essentially told Leonidas that he was fated to die at this fight. According to the records, the oracle's verse that she had given him was, But as for you, ye men who in wide-spaced Sparta inhabit, either your glorious city is sacked by the children of Perses, or if it be not so, then a king of the stock Heraclean, dead shall be mourned for by all in the boundaries of broad Lacedaemon. Him nor the might of bulls nor the raging of lions shall hinder, for he hath might as of Zeus, and I say he shall not be restrained, till one of the other of these he have utterly torn and divided. So, based off of that prophecy, it's believed that Leonidas thought he was destined to die, and that in order to protect Sparta, one of the two kings of Sparta must fall. And so he had decided to take that stand and fight against the Persians. When the battle actually started, Xerxes was surprised by how much trouble his warriors had against the Greeks. The Greek fighting style of lining up with their shields overlapping and creating basically a wall of shields to protect the fighters behind them was very effective, especially against the mixed soldier groups of the Persian army because his army was built up of different conquered countries and peoples. So the fighting styles were all across the board and they weren't necessarily uniform and they didn't stand as necessarily a united front the way the Greeks did. 
because all the Greek soldiers, despite coming from different city-states, had essentially the same fighting style. They also made a point of making sure, as much as possible, to have fighters from the same city-states fight together at the front line, because they were used to working with each other, so that made it more likely that they would stand together well. On the first day, Xerxes sent in the first forces of people from Medes and Kissians, and they were forced to retreat. After seeing this, he sent in his immortals, who were his personal bodyguards. There's supposed to have been roughly 10,000 of them. And he sent them in to fight against them. And the Spartans specifically are mentioned as fighting against these immortals. I suspect that's where that big battle scene with the really strong warriors fighting the 300 Spartans is based off of in the movie. But regardless, the Spartans were able to hold their own. And though they may have lost a few, they killed a lot more and sent the immortals retreating back again. The next day, they actually had the same issue happen again. Xerxes sent forces in, and the Spartans and the Greeks were able to push them back. Finally, after all of that, there was a local man, um, a local Malian man, named Epialtes, who went to Xerxes and sought a reward in order to show Xerxes the secret path through the mountain that would bypass the main pass of Thermopylae, where the soldiers had taken their stand. In the movie 300, they actually call him Ephialtes, and he's the deformed, hunchbacked fighter whose parents had run away and came. he came back trying to join Sparta, and Leonidas refused him. In reality, he wasn't a Spartan. He was actually born in the town of Malis, and he betrayed all of the Greeks to the Persians. The betrayal was so well documented and he was so reviled by his fellow Greeks for doing this that the name Epialtes actually came to mean nightmare in Greek over time. And he also had his name become synonymous with traitor. Much like nowadays we might say, oh, don't be such a Benedict Arnold, as in don't be a traitor. Back then they might have said something like, don't be an Epialtes, don't be a traitor. The betrayal of Epialtes allowed Xerxes to send Hydarnus, one of the leaders of his immortals, and his immortal soldiers to go fight through that mountain pass. It was being guarded by Phokian soldiers, but they weren't able to hold the pass against the larger force of the Persian army. And so those immortal soldiers, the bodyguards of Xerxes, were able to go past them and get to the back of the Greek forces, thereby surrounding the Greek forces. When they heard this was happening, when some of the Greek scouts informed the leaders of what was going on and that the Persians had gotten around them, Leonidas ordered everyone who wasn't a Spartan to leave. It's believed that he primarily wanted to save as many forces as possible for future battles while still fighting as hard as they could. And so he sent a lot of the other Greek city-states away because he wanted to keep his allies protected and have those soldiers available to fight later if they managed to make it out somehow. There were a few who refused to leave and they actually stayed and fought with the Spartans. One was... Megisteus, who was a soothsayer that actually predicted the death of the Greeks at this battle. Another was the group of thespians who had come. They refused to leave. They wanted to stay and fight with the Spartans, as did the Theban warriors, although 
depending on which of the ancient historians you read, there was some belief that Leonidas didn't trust those Theban soldiers. And in later battles, the Theban soldiers did in fact side with the Persians and fight with them. So it's possible that the historians were just referencing that because, again, they were all Greek, so they might have been a little miffed that some of their fellow Greeks fought with the Persians, but we can't be 100% sure. After the others had left, the Spartans and the Greeks who had stayed to fight with them fought against all of the Persian army that still remained, and not surprisingly, they were eventually killed. None of the Greek soldiers who stayed survived, as far as we know. We do know that the Persians also did take heavy losses, and that Xerxes, in fact, lost two of his brothers during the battle. We also know that when Leonidas fell in battle, his men fought against the Persians to reclaim his body and bring it back to their line. Even though he couldn't fight with them anymore, they loved him enough that they didn't want to have his body be taken by the enemy. And in fact, at the end of the battle, the Persians actually did something that was uncharacteristic for them. Xerxes ordered that the body of Leonidas be decapitated and crucified, which was completely against what the Persians usually did in battle, because usually the Persians were very honorable towards their fallen enemies, having battled so valiantly. That didn't happen in the case of Leonidas. Following this battle, Demeritus warned Xerxes that in Sparta itself, there were at least 8,000 more men, just like the Spartan soldiers he had fought that day, and also warned that there were a lot of other good Greek soldiers as well. Xerxes took his forces and marched towards Athens at this point, battling along the way, and when he got to Athens, he actually found it abandoned because the Athenians had evacuated when they heard that Xerxes was coming, because they didn't want to give him the satisfaction of taking their people. In this way, they denied Xerxes some of the revenge he wanted by conquering Athens, because he couldn't conquer the people. But he did end up burning everything to the ground. While this was happening, though, the Athenian navy was continuing to fight along with the other Greek ships against the Persian ships, and they actually ended up forcing the Persian ships to mostly have to flee. The battle was vast. A lot of people died. One thing that the Greeks had going for them is that pretty much uniformly, Greek soldiers knew how to swim. And so even though their ships may have sunk, they were able to swim to shore. And so they didn't lose nearly as many soldiers. The Persians, because the main Persian forces primarily came from landlocked areas, didn't all know how to swim, and so the Persian fleet not only lost their ships, but they also lost their sailors because they couldn't swim and they drowned. Learning of all of these battles on the sea and that his ships were losing so heavily, Xerxes and his men hurried to return to Persia before they could be cut off from their escape route. He did leave men to hold the land they had conquered and particularly left one of his commanders, Mardonius, to try to stay there and maintain that control of the land they had conquered already. In the late spring of 479 BC, Mardonius sent Alexander I of Macedon to offer peace to Athens in, again, sort of an exchange of, we're going to come conquer you, but, you know, here's your option out. Athens refused. 
Mardonius and his men marched to Athens again, but again they found it abandoned because the Athenians weren't going to stay there and let themselves be conquered. They sent another envoy on to the Athenians where they were residing outside of the city, and Athens refused again. And this time, the Spartan army marched to join Athens to fight the Persians. And once and for all, they killed off the last of the invading Persian forces and killed Mardonius, the leader who had been left behind. And this was how the Greek city-states came together to officially stop the invasion of Greece by Persia. This last battle was called the Battle of Plataea, and in addition to the Spartans, it actually included the forces of other hoplite armies from the, some of the other city-states, all finally pushing back against the Persians and driving them out of Greece. Also, on the water, the navy of these allied Greek states fought against the remaining navy of the Persians in the Battle of Mycale. Mycale, I'm not entirely sure how to say that one. It's M-Y-C-A-L-E. And they were able to defeat them. And this really started off the point where the Greeks took the offensive and were able to eventually push the Persians out of Europe, the Aegean Islands, and the Ionian area before the war finally came to an end in 479 BC. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you want to learn more and or use the same sources I did to find out more information about the Battle of Thermopylae, then I recommend the book I used primarily, which was called The Battle of Thermopylae, 300 Spartans and the Forgotten Citizen Soldiers Who Fought With Them. It's available on Kindle as well as in paperback, and I got it off of Amazon. The author is In 60 Learning, just like my Hot Shepsuit book that I used last week. And for those of you who don't know how to spell it because Greek can be a little weird, uh, Thermopylae is spelled T-H-E-R-M-O-P-Y-L-A-E. So if you look that up, you should be able to find it on Amazon. It was a good book. It was well-written, and it's not real long while still being very informative. So you can learn a lot without having to spend a lot of time reading it if time is a consideration for you. And that's the real story behind the movie 300. I hope you enjoyed it. Please remember to check out the other wonderful podcasts and productions here at nerdsmith.org. I'll be back next week with a new and interesting topic. And until then, don't forget to geek thyself. Dust off your dice and hold on to your butts. Do you love magic, mystery, intrigue, and romance? Of course you do. Meet Rowan, the enigmatic bard. Atlas, the blacksmith, what a heart of gold. Kristoff, the sorcerer who enchants with both fact and fiction. Join our heroes as they unmake the best laid plans of their indomitable DM in The, the Lawful Stupid. Stupid.